Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent uh, by John Climacus. And we're uh, in just at the beginning of the first step of the ladder on renunciation. In fact, we've only gotten through, if you're just joining us, we've only gotten through the first four paragraphs. So, so it's been a slow start for us. And uh, we'll be getting into the meat, I think, of the text here uh, of the first step uh, tonight, hopefully. And uh, we got we digressed a little bit here the first uh, couple sessions. But uh, so we're picking up tonight with paragraph number five on page 54, if you're following along in this text. And as always, I'll go through and read a paragraph or so and then open it up for questions or comments that anyone would like to put forward. All who have willingly left the things of the world have certainly done so for the sake of the future kingdom or because of the multitude of their sins or for love of God. If they were not moved by any of these reasons, their withdrawal from the world was unreasonable. But God who sets our contest waits to see what the end of our course will be. And so, and he'll sort of break this down for us a little bit here in the coming paragraphs, but three reasons, at least initially, that he puts forward here, the multitude of one sin. So uh, as a means of repentance, of doing penance uh, for one's past sins, that one would uh, move to a life of solitude or the discipline of a monastery to live in, in obedience. Uh, let's see, or because of the multitude, let's see, or for, for the love of God. And so purely out of the desire to know intimacy with God, to set aside the things of this world, to leave all, as it were, to follow Christ. And so the, the desire for him alone. And outside of these reasons, he tells us that the withdrawal would be unreasonable, uh, that uh, there might be a lot of different reasons, certainly why a person would leave the world, you know, simply the love of solitude or the escaping from life in general, or is, is escaping all social con, uh, uh, contact. But these wouldn't certainly bear fruit for the kingdom or lead to the end that a monk would be uh, seeking or would desire, and uh, in some ways would be to be pitied, I think, to, to take the path because of its rigors. 
Uh, but he'll show us as we move on that a person's motives might uh, be less than certainly love from the beginning. Uh, but God in his providence can work with this and perfect it and uh, have it become a source of great healing for an individual. The man who has withdrawn from the world in order to shake off his own burden of sins should imitate those who sit outside the city among the tombs and do not cease from his hot and fiery streams of tears and voiceless heartfelt groanings until he too sees that Jesus has come to him and rolled away the stone of hardness from his heart and loosed Lazarus, that is to say our mind, from the bands of sin and ordered his attendant angels, loose him from the passions and let him go to blessed dispassion. Otherwise he will have gained nothing. So you, you can see again, I think how deeply rooted in the scriptures the fathers were, that this again was their spiritual reading. It's what they were immersed in on a daily basis and what informed uh, their uh, spiritual struggle and shaped it. And, uh, and so uh, the person who's leaving the world to embrace this life of solitude because of the sin should imitate uh, those uh, who are outside the city among the tombs. And this should sound familiar uh, to us. And in fact, I don't know if it's this weekend or sometime this week where we, we hear about the, the demoniacs who are chained up in the stone uh, tombs outside of the city. And uh, certainly, I think uh, one who is held in the grip of one's passions and who is driven by the demons uh, can come to the, the desert uh, and imitate them in the sense of weeping and mourning for their sins. And out of that compunction, know uh, a kind of deep cleansing. And uh, as we've talked about in some of the past groups, um, the, the mourning that is associated with repentance in the fathers always has this end, the joy of restored intimacy with God. And so it's not simply a psychological sorrow for one's sin or shame, uh, but an acknowledgement of the loss uh, and the woundedness that has come from through sin itself, the, the breakdown of that relationship with, of intimacy with God. And so the tears are a reflection uh, I think of the loss of, of that intimacy and the desire for it again. And so much so that many of the fathers describe, and Climacus in particular describes tears as a kind of second baptism. And that through weeping over one's sins, that there is kind of cleansing of heart that takes place uh, and in order to free oneself uh, from the passions that have one in one's grip. And, uh, and one would do this, John says, until the, the stone is of hardness from his heart is rolled away. So here, you know, certainly a specific reference to Lazarus, who had died uh, and had been entombed. And similarly, I think uh, John is telling us that there is a kind of spiritual death that comes to us through especially certain sins and uh, very much like being in tomb like Lazarus. And it is through the compunction, the tears that are sh shed, and certainly the, the grace uh, and mercy of God, that that stone is rolled away from the tomb. And that the angels, he says, attendant angels, are ordered to remove the bands, the, the shackles 
of the passions, that one would be freed from them in order to be able to know that that freedom in Christ and in Christ in the life of grace, lose him from his passions and let him go to blessed dispassion. There's a wonderful little footnote here, and you can also find it in the glossary of the Philokalia too, as a, a wonderful description of dispassion. Uh, it's what not what we would consider a kind of stoic view uh, of human life, where one has no feeling or no desire. In fact, it's just the opposite. Dispassion for the Desert Fathers meant that all of one's desire would be ordered and directed toward God. And so far from being a kind of stoic lack of feeling, that the freer one becomes from the shackles of one's passions, the greater one's desire and love for God becomes, the greater freedom that one has to give oneself in love uh, to God and to others. And so as you see in the footnote, Diaticus, St. Diaticus says, one can speak of the fire of dispassion even. And so there, there's a deepening of desire, a deepening of one's longing for God that comes and is concurrent with our overcoming of our passions that are often tied to the things of this world or to the flesh. And so John is beginning here just in broad strokes for us, uh, painting an image of what, what, what the, the renunciation of the monk is leading to. Uh, why a person would enter into this life. And fundamentally, it is to know healing from one's sin, uh, but, uh, and secondarily and most important, to give oneself and love to God without any impediment, without anything uh, that uh, could take the place of God in one's life. And so all of it is driven by love. Uh, and all the ascetic life is driven by love. And I think this is why John will say a number of times throughout uh, this step and further along that to embrace this life or the life of asceticism uh, simply outside of the desire and love for God is something that's sort of pitiable uh, because it becomes uh, simply a matter of human endurance or at worst a kind of punitive uh, approach to one's life and one's own weaknesses. Whereas what we find within the fathers consistently is the language of desire, uh, the language of, of freedom uh, that one is seeking. And uh, certainly there's a penitential element of it and to it in, in the sense of making reparation, but uh, in the sense of healing to repair that relationship with God. And I think in this way, the fathers have often been, uh, for lack of a better word, given a bad rap in the sense of having a negative anthropology. When I think in reality, they have a very high sense of the human person, the dignity of the human person, and our destiny and dignity in Christ. And uh, the, the harshness towards sin and the zeal with which they seek to overcome the passions is tied to the depth of one's love for God and the acknowledgement of his love for us. So it's always relational. It's not seen outside of that context. And this is important uh, because even amongst the, the monks themselves, uh, one will hear stories where uh, the understanding of that is, is lost for one reason or another. 
and and the emphasis becomes distorted and the focus is upon the heroics of their ascetical practices pride creeps in or even at times things that are disastrous we i think we've heard in other readings where you know a monk will uh read a passage from the scripture the one that the, the uh demon quoted to christ that the angels will come to uh, pick you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And so thinking that he's reached such a level of freedom in the ascetical life that he steps off of a cliff and plunges to his death. And so, the, you know, the monks weren't uh, absent of those examples of those whose vision became really darkened by their own pride or a distorted vision of the ascetical life where they lost sight of this, this focus upon the relationship with God. And this is important for us moving forward because some of the images and the language at times uh, can be jarring and certainly the, the depth of the asceticism, the rigor of it uh, can be jarring to more modern sensibilities and not just to modern sensibilities, but I think as human beings, uh, I think our sense of one living this life or having uh, fasting to this level of strictness or keeping vigils uh, can be hard to wrap our minds around. So holding fast to this understanding of the, the relational aspect of the ascetical life becomes essential for us. Anthony. I, th I think there might also be a cultural dynamic behind these fa this father and the gospels when they talk about the wilderness. Mm -hmm. The Greeks would refer to, I believe it uh, was generally in, among the Athenians, that if you lived out in the wilderness, outside of society, away from your family, you were either like an animal, a brute beast, or like a god. And I wonder if he's trying to make the distinction that you're not cutting yourself off this relational thing. You're just not cutting off a relationship. But you're saying, in a way like the Greek hero Oedipus. I think it was Oedipus. Maybe it was, it was Jason. I don't remember. But he leaves his one city, goes through the wilderness, conquers the, the, the giants and, and the, and the rocks. Oh, the gods just cut Anthony off. So <laughs> uh, I'm sure he'll get back to us here. But I think I have a sense of what he's saying, you know, that certainly the, the desert in and of itself was has both within scripture and within the in culture, various cultures has, has been seen as certainly significant. And we see it within the Old Testament uh, as well. And, uh, you know, the, the desert was typically a place where one would go to do battle with the demons, uh, a place of exile, which we'll hear uh, in one of the next steps as, as well, you know, in terms of uh, we think of the, the leper, uh, often banished uh, from from society and culture, but especially it was seen as a place of uh, where the demons uh, uh, sort of presided, and that's where one would go to do spiritual warfare. And so there there was this sense of retreating there, not simply to escape the world or the realities of society, but going there to enter into a kind of spiritual warfare uh, to overcome the passions and to strengthen oneself in the life of virtue. And so this is why not everyone would be called, obviously, to take this path. And fewer still, as we've already heard, 
uh, from the Evergatinos on Monday, if you are still to take the path of the anchorite, that there are definite dangers in doing so. Uh, that uh, without having been under, without having undergone the training of the Cenobitic life of living in obedience for years, of fostering the virtues as well as overcoming the passions, that to enter into the desert would be like uh, a soldier, as we heard, being thrust into battle without having any training whatsoever, or without how, knowing how to use his weapon. And similarly, the, the, the monks saw the, the desert as that place of spiritual warfare. And so this is why I think the, the monastery itself becomes the eventually becomes the training ground. We see these individuals who go out into the desert, you know, the St. Anthony's, uh, Paul the Hermit, and, and many of the early individuals. But eventually what I think emerges is the, the common life under a rule, under elders, and in particular under an abbot, uh, and that only those who had lived that for many years then would go into the greater solitude. Uh, again, not as a reward or not as an escape, but to enter into that kind of spiritual battle on a deeper, on a deeper level. Anthony, did you want to finish up your comments? You got cut off there. Um, I'm sorry about that, Father. Um, well, I, I was thinking, I don't know exactly when I got cut off, but... Um, Go ahead. We we're talking about those going into the desert as being like gods or the hero or... Or a mere animal. Animal, not mere beast, right. Yes, Father. And I was wondering if that is also in the background among these Greek speakers. Um, because they all lived within a polis. In fact, uh, you were just talking about how the monastery is like a polis within the wilderness. Right. And uh, I wonder if, if these writers and the gospel writers consciously have in their mind this relational aspect you teach about in the desert. Mm -hmm. um, that you're not cutting yourself off to be an animal, not some scraggly mountain man. But to conquer and win a kingdom. Right. Yeah, I think it would definitely be the latter uh, that you mentioned, that, uh, that it was this, a kind of laboratory, is how I found it often described, more by contemporary writers about uh, the desert monasticism, that they went there uh, precisely to enter into the spiritual warfare, but also, I think, to see the in the context of how in this context of this, how the passions manifest themselves, the working of the, the mind, the thoughts, and where, where the, the, the locus of the battle is to be found. And so a kind of, uh, always a kind of training ground, I think. And uh, I might've mentioned in one of our other groups that the novices of the oratory in our constitutions are called Tyrones. And in the Greek, if you remember, that is, it comes from tiros, which means uh, like a young soldier in training. And that would fit very much uh, with the, the, the sense of what we find here as the desert being a kind of spiritual, a place of spiritual battle or training in that regard. And uh, Philip Neary, you know, loved the Desert Fathers, in particular Climacus and Cassian. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the, the novices were given that name, uh, 
because of this, of how they were formed and how Philip himself was formed uh, by the fathers. In fact, he saw himself as a desert father living within the city. And so his consciousness of the spiritual life and the spiritual battle was very much formed by this text, in particular, along with Cassian's conferences. But I think we see him doing the same thing, uh, immersing himself in deep solitude. The first 10 years of his life were spent in the catacombs of Rome and all night long in prayer. And he fasted very much like the Desert Fathers, although living in the city, and engaging others, he saw the necessity there of engaging in this ascetical life. He had a very keen sense of this from the, the beginning. And even before coming to Rome, uh, if you remember, he spent a great deal of time in a place called Gaeta, which is, isn't far from Monte Cassino uh, along the Mediterranean Sea. And there he would spend all night in prayer in a little chapel that was there. And so, you know, very early on, we see the influence of the Desert Fathers on him, but him we see him engaging in this same process and embracing this same wisdom that there needed to be, uh, in order to be freed to love God and to serve him, one had to engage in the, the ascetical life, had to overcome pride and overcome uh, the, the passions, in particular the bodily uh, those tied to the bodily appetites and desires. And so, uh, and so I, primarily, that's how I've come to see through, you know, both the primary and secondary sources that this is how the desert was, was viewed. Now, the connection to the, what you mentioned, I'm not, I'm not quite as sure. I'd have to explore that myself again. Okay. All right. So, Number seven, those of us who wish to go out of Egypt and fly from Pharaoh certainly need some Moses as a mediator with God and from, and from God, who standing between action and divine vision will raise hands of prayer for us to God, so that guided by him, we may cross the sea of sin and rout the Amalek of the passions. That is why those who have surrendered themselves to God deceive themselves if they suppose that they have no need of a director. Those who came out of Egypt had Moses as their guide, and those who fled from Sodom had an angel. The former are like those who are healed of the passions of the soul by the care of physicians. These are they who come out of Egypt. The latter are like those who long to put off the uncleanness of the wretched body, that is why they need a helper, an angel, so to speak, or rather one equal to an angel. For in accordance with the corruption of our wounds, we need a director who is indeed an expert and a physician. So it's interesting. Again, we see the, how deeply rooted they were in, in the scriptures and how quickly also that John moves to emphasizing the need of not making this journey in isolation. Uh, that even though he himself spent many years in deep solitude, uh, it's not something that he puts forward in this writing to the abbot of this neighboring monastery as being the ideal. That in the spiritual battle, being fraught with the dangers that it is, that one has the need of a director. And he makes use of this image of the uh, Israelites going up in battle against Amalek and Aaron and her as it were, holding up the, the arms of, of Moses, who's mediating on their behalf. 
And they uh, symbolizing action and divine vision. And if you remember, we've, we talked a little bit about the active life being seen by the Desert Fathers, not as a kind of activism or engaging even in acts of particular charity uh, on behalf of others. But the active life was the, the struggle with the passions and the ascetic life as a whole. And the fruit of that would be the divine vision or contemplation uh, that one would be seeking, uh, theoria, you know, that the, the, the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul, the noose, if you remember, we, we talked about would be purified through the ascetical life in order that one might uh, come to gaze upon and contemplate divine things. And, uh, and so the two are intimately linked together. Uh, John Climacus is telling us here, and some, depending upon the nature of their wounds, need one who is a, a physician and one who has great experience in this spiritual battle. And the deeper the wounds are, the greater the wounds are, the greater the expertise that is needed. And so he uses the image of those coming out of Sodom being led by an angel. And so saying that those who have been more and more deeply wounded by their passions and find themselves in the grip of it need one who has led, as it were, the angelic life or has risen above the passions uh, to such an extent that he would have the capacity to give them the guidance that they would need, that he would have the wisdom to guide them through the rough and the difficult path that would uh, lay ahead of them. And sometimes there's a need, and we talked a little bit about this last time, there's a need for a PCP. Sometimes there's a need for a surgeon, uh, someone who has a greater skill and can remove the, what is cancerous and what is more devastating, and it can lead to uh, destruction within spiritual life, lead to spiritual death. And uh, it's a wonderful image. I think, and it brings to the forefront what we've talked about in so many of the other, the gr other the groups uh, about the importance of spiritual direction and, uh, and about how difficult that can be in our own day, lacking at times those who are, are skilled elders, those who have not just uh, an abstract knowledge of the spiritual tradition, but uh, have moved from the notional to the real those who have experiential knowledge of engaging in the spiritual battle themselves. And so can impart a kind of knowledge uh, and uh, on those that they're guiding in order that they might uh, escape the pitfalls that exist, the many pitfalls that exist, you know, to know, have book knowledge of things. I think we all know this going to college doesn't really prepare you for life any more than going to seminary prepares one for being a priest and uh, certainly pre-Cana doesn't prepare a couple for marriage. That's probably the worst class of all that exists. Uh, but, you know, that it is really experience, you know, of engaging in that struggle with what goes in, on within the mind and the heart and seeing the subtleties of, um, you know, the contradictions that exist within us, how we can desire two things at the same time, we can love and hate things at the same time, but also one who knows the, the subtleties of the, the demons uh, and uh, the relentlessness of the demons in terms of the, how they put temptations before us, their patience, how they will allow us even to 
uh, as it were, grow in virtue and grow very quickly, not place any obstacle before us, uh, knowing certainly the patterns of our behaviors uh, in order that a greater fall might come at a later time, uh, knowing that we might be more vulnerable to pride, for example. And so having someone who's spent many years engaged in this, and we know John Climacus had been under the guidance of an elder from a very young age, the age of 16, had lived the life of solitude for 40 years, and then was made abbot of um, the monastery of St. Catharines on Mount Sinai. And it's then that he's asked to write this work for an abbot of a neighboring monastery. So John is one who's engaged in the battle on multiple levels. You know, he's had the guidance of an elder who he lived with and had very close uh, uh, guidance and then had also lived in uh, deep solitude and had immersed himself in the writings of the fathers and the scriptures. If you remember, he's also called John the Scholastic because of the breadth of his knowledge uh, of the fathers and then lived in the monastery. Uh, for many years as well. And so on multiple levels, he's been formed in order to be uh, one of the greatest uh, of guides among, this, uh, among the Desert Fathers. Ricardo. I think about that. Sorry, just one question about uh, it, the, the previous paragraph and this, it, it's, uh, this, it comments that there is a, it seems to be a prerequisite of desiring uh, ascetic life to, to have a stream of hot and fiery tears mm -hmm. uh, for one's own sin. Right. And, uh, and then, and then in, this, in this paragraph, it, it seems to be talking more about the wounds that we have and, mm -hmm. uh, and falling, you know, falling prey of the passions. So, and so I was wondering, do you have any comment on 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 this uh, sense of uh, you know this this tears this, this repentance for one's own sin when one how can we get that stream is that just a figure of speech or should we be really you know crying uh, realizing our sins is there a way I remember sorry is, mm -hmm. I remember years ago uh, during some meditation my, a, a prayer that uh, I was uh, I was suggested to ask for a grace to be uh, conscious of, of you know, a deep knowledge of, of, of my sin. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I was wondering if you could comment on. Yeah, on, on all those things, all, all excellent points. And I think, uh, you know, in stressing the point that you did, you know, this kind of deep sorrow and the tears that flow from it, you know, because of one's sin, already there, I think we see the action of God's grace, that the, uh, there's an awakening there, like, that shines upon the, the poverty of one's sin and the consequences of that sin. If you remember St. John Paul II said, sin is its own punishment. And often it's that is the uh, impetus for conversion of life. One begins to see the deep poverty of that and the, that it brings to our life and that it strips us of our dignity and identity. And uh, when we began the Evergetinos, uh, which was put together around the year 1000 uh, of, and capturing the writings of the, the monks from, you know, about th from the fourth to the seventh century, the emphasis in all the first hypotheses of, of the first volume is on repentance. 
and how essential it is for the, the beginning of the spiritual life, this turning toward God uh, that is at the heart of the spiritual life, that this is the beginning, uh, this turning toward him that brings uh, a flood of grace and mercy upon the individual. And there's already grace that I think comes in, in and through the, the gift of repentance itself that allows that turning toward God. But our response to that grace uh, and, turning, and turning towards him, acknowledging the poverty of that sin and seeking his forgiveness is, is the first step to conversion of life and to the path that John is speaking of here that would even precede uh, renunciation. This acknowledgement of one's woundedness, need for God's mercy, healing, uh, the darkness of, of sin and the destruction that it brings. So repentance is the, this, uh, this first movement that must take place. And with that, uh, the fathers often write about the flood of tears. And this is consistent throughout the spiritual tradition. And we'll see it a lot in John Climacus in particular. He writes beautifully about it. And he acknowledges that not everybody will produce physical tears. There are those that will experience that same level of compunction and sorrow, but not produce the physical tears, but nonetheless have the compunction that leads them back to God, that makes them turn back to God. But nonetheless, we do see this emphasis. And as you said, uh, you know, a willingness to pray for that gift uh, precisely because, as John describes it, as a second kind of baptism, that we turn away uh, in our sin from this extraordinary gift that God has given to us, the, the being drawn into the very life of grace, the life of God, that we turn away from that, we fall from it, and that the tears uh, become a renewal of one's baptism. A kind of cleansing comes through them, through the compunction that leads us then back to intimacy with God. And so for the, the fathers, they would be seen as something essential and would be the external reflection of the internal reality. And so often uh, then indicative of whether or not that compunction or that repentance was genuine and true and how deep it was for the individual. And, you know, I think it's very, again, difficult in modern times for us to think about it. Not that people don't weep. I mean, we weep about a lot of different things, but often we don't weep about our, our sins. And, uh, and, and part of that, I think, is this loss of a sense of what, what sin does to us, but also the impact that it has upon our relationship with God. And the, the weaker that one's faith has become, and as culture has broken down, and certainly Christian culture has broken down, this sense of uh, of knowing the internal angst and uh, anguish over the breakdown of that relationship is something that has grown, grown cold for us, the, that I think is part of our need to go back to the fathers uh, to recapture this. Uh, and, and so if it's indicative of the depth of one's repentance and the desire to turn away from one's sin, then it is something also then to be fostered within the spiritual life. And uh, there was another thought that I had there that, you know, again, I'll, okay, 
the the lack of sort of the Christian culture now and our the breakdown of our connection to the spiritual tradition that teaches this. We've moved more, as we've talked about here in the past, to therapeutic man, therapeutic woman. And so those tears might flow and one might experience one's woundedness on an emotional level. But often that woundedness is not connected at all to the breakdown of that relationship with God or sin. It is often tied to the wounds that one experiences within the context of life, you know, trauma or, you know, breakdown in relationship. But there's this loss of this connection with God and the sorrow at the break, breakdown of that relationship. And in, in essence, that's the, the real trauma of life, because we lose something of our identity as human beings when we move away from that relationship with God. If God, if we're made in the image and likeness of God, and our fullness of that identity and our experience of the fullness of life is found in and through that intimacy with him. And in the past, we've talked a little bit about Augustine saying, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, that one has to begin to see that that much of the anxiety and much of the depression that we experience in life is rooted in the life of sin and the breakdown of that relationship with God. If we turn away from he who is the source of life and love for us, we are going to experience an incredible void internally. And this is what I think, as much as I respect modern psychology, this is where they've truncated the view of the human person, that the anthropology is incomplete there. And even the use of the word psychology has lost its meaning. You know, psychology means the, the healing of the soul. Uh, Herothios Vlakos wrote a work called Orthodox Psychotherapy. And he un unpacks this beautifully in terms of what we've seen take place over the generations, this move away from this fuller anthropology, this fuller understanding of the human person, to the therapeutic view of the human person that neglects what is most essential about who we are. And so I don't want to diminish psychotherapy because I think it is extraordinarily healing for people. And oftentimes we go through trials and we experience anxiety that is debilitating, same thing with depression, and it should be treated. I mean, it's in many ways, it's a gift from God that brings people great healing in the same way of going to a medical doctor for other, uh, for other reasons. But uh, I think in large part, uh, the darkness that sin brings into our life and the breakdown of relationships is the cause of great sorrow and anguish for us as human beings. And to be immersed in that relationship with Christ, even in the face of the chaos and the trials of this life, is something that brings an abiding peace and joy and this is what we see in the saints, you know, St. Philip Neri, I bring him up a lot because he's our founder, but, you know, we see this as a fundamental attitude and characteristic uh, of Philip Neri, that so filled with the spirit of God was he, that he experienced the, the joy and the peace of the kingdom. And so he's known as the joyful saint, and it's not because he did not suffer, but the joy that he participated in was not a worldly joy but that arose out of that intimacy with God, and so it could not be taken from him. Okay. Sam Rodriguez. Great question, Ricardo. Thank you, Sam. Hello. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, Father, 
as I was taking in the paragraphs, you know, especially the one related to uh, needing the, the director and likening that to uh, Moses in the desert, um, you know, on one hand, you know, we're, we're apt to likely think about things like a spiritual director, right? Uh, or formators within the context of, of religious life. But I wonder, you know, if you, if the pro, our Protestant brothers and sisters have had a theme that I think has been missed actually within uh, something that's been lost within the Catholic tradition, which is discipleship and master disciple relationship, discipling mm-hmm. practice. And, you know, we see that in the ancient times of the church with like Paul discipled Timothy and Titus and John discipled Polycarp. And I I just wonder if, especially now we live in this, this time of the universal call to holiness where people in their lay life are, are supposed to be called into that. Is this a time within the church where in addition to seeking a spiritual director, um, you know, a spiritual director who's really properly trained, there's, they're not going to be able to necessarily kind of roll up their sleeves and get involved in the, in the muck of everyday life in the same way that someone who's discipling you might be able to. And, and I just wonder whether or not that might be a missing piece of the puzzle that we're not really emphasizing discipling in our discipleship. Uh, yeah. Right. Very good questions. And, you know, I think at the heart of that is the fact that we, we don't live out the Christian life in isolation, that there's a radical solidarity that exists between us. And I think the individualism that we have seen sort of develop within the world, and especially in the West, has moved us away from that. And there can be this very individualistic approach to God. And, uh, and we find that even amongst the Protestants too, you know, a personal relationship with Christ. And, you know, as a Catholic, we should say absolutely, in the, in the most profound way, especially in and through the, the most holy Eucharist, uh, but also with each other in and through our baptism, that, you know, that we are, are bound as, as one body together, and that the way that we live our lives is not something that affects us individually. And so when we, even when we think of sin, uh, we don't think of it as only affecting us. Well, you know, when, how people will say, well, it's not harming anybody, it's hurting anyone. There's a fundamental flaw in that thought, especially when we understand it ourselves as living in the context of the body of Christ. And likewise, I think uh, when uh, there's one contemporary elder uh, in the East who says, you know, when a family has a prayer within it, it elevates the entire family that there is such a, a, a unity there that exists among them, that even if the, some of the members of the family are faltering, that one person who's completely given over to Christ and is praying in a very deep way strengthens the, the family. And in a similar way, I think when we uh, are, give ourselves over to the passions and give ourselves over to sin, we weaken the body. And we, we see this in, in scripture. I mean, this isn't something that uh, develops with the fathers. I mean, we hear Paul uh, talking about uh, about it in a similar fashion. So this kind of radical individualism we have to overcome and seeing ourselves as disconnected from each other, that we should be as concerned about another person's salvation as we are concerned about our own. And uh, if I mentioned in past groups that, uh, again, one of these modern elders says, you know, when we greet somebody, you know, we shouldn't simply say, well, how are you doing? 
you know, because we, we know that what is most significant is their relationship with God. So the question that we would ask is, how is your prayer life? And that might be a little awkward for us, but it really, I think what he's saying is th this takes us really to the heart of life. We are to become prayer, that our, our focus is constantly upon God and we are immersed in that relationship, not in an episodic way, but our life is rooted and all things begin and end in Christ. And, you know, and so what, you know, how a person is doing in this world or how they're doing physically or how they're doing in their job is insignificant in comparison to the state of their soul. And so moving away from this individualism to this understanding of this deep and profound connection is part of that. You're right. I think uh, in the Protestant communities, there was taking hold of this idea of discipling. And we've even seen some Catholic groups begin to imitate that, which is sort of ironic, uh, given what we're talking about here with the Desert Fathers. But Focus, who we have worked with, with us here at the universities, uh, the Fellowship of Catholic University, uh, students, you know, they're, they're uh, missionaries uh, that work on college campuses with campus ministry teams. They're fresh out of college. They dedicate a couple of years. And what they do is they foster this kind of discipling that you're talking about, that uh, they will disciple a certain number of students. And then those students will disciple after a period of time, other students. And the sense of uh, encouraging each other in the spiritual life, not playing the role of spiritual director, but nonetheless, taking a profound interest in the spiritual well-being of those who've been placed in their charge on a spiritual level. And this is something that we've moved away from uh, in, in the sense of spiritual elders, where that you know, the, they really become the ones who become the, the, the compass, the spiritual compass of the church as a whole. And in the East, you know, we, we see the bishops being selected out of the monasteries too. And I think that's for a particular reason. And uh, because, you know, they've engaged in the spiritual warfare, how are they then to pastor or guide their communities if, if they cannot be true spiritual elders to them, if they have not been fully immersed in, in the spiritual life? And But with the breakdown, I think, and the disconnect with the spiritual tradition, uh, we find such a radical inconsistency there in guidance that is given. And as we've heard uh, in Evergatinos this past week on Monday, uh, that there can be great harm that is done by the poor counsel of those who fulfill that role of elders, those who do not have this experiential knowledge of the spiritual battle. So where does that leave us at the moment? Uh, because discipling can be fruitful and I've seen the fruit of it firsthand here at the universities. I mean, the campus ministry has exploded because of this personal connection that is made by these missionaries and they become sort of like the arms of the Newman Center and the go-between between the priest and the students often. And, uh, and so we've seen the fruit of that. But uh, what do you do as a person develops in the spiritual life? And uh, where there is this greater need for the expertise that John is speaking about here, the physician or you know, the surgeon who, who really has lived the angelic life and so can uh, guide a person in that spiritual life on a deeper level. 
And this is, is where I think we are struggled, struggling with, not only just for a couple of generations, but I think there's been a growing disconnect from the spiritual tradition as a whole for, for many centuries. And, uh, and the loss of the sense of the importance of the elder. And I think, you know, from the, the time of the, the schism on, I think we see a sort of a breakdown of the, you know, the it, vestiges of it, I think we see uh, perpetuate themselves within the life of the church. Great figures like Philip Neri, I think, uh, did exist and others around his time. But what we see among the elders here in the desert and the nature of the ascetical life, and this will bring me to my fundamental point here, is the loss of the sense of Christianity being an ascetical religion. And that asceticism is at the heart of our living out our faith. We are exercising our faith. And where we embrace this in every other area of our life, it's broken down in terms of our practice of the spiritual life and the practice of our faith. And so how is it that we get back to this or experience a kind of renewal within the life of the church? And I think it is resource mont. That's what the church saw, that it's only by going back to the sources of our faith, to the scriptures, to the fathers, that this begins to emerge again, perhaps slowly and in little islands among groups of people who immerse themselves in the writings of the fathers, does it begin to emerge again, this, this wisdom that is essential for living out the gospel in our day-to-day -day life. And it's funny, you know, and I studied psychoanalysis and it's interesting how certain segments pick up things from the spiritual tradition and they use them and use them very well. Like an analyst will see a person almost on a daily basis. And what takes place there is the revelation of one's thoughts, every idea that comes into one's mind, free association. And we see this among the elders in the desert, that those who are under their charge would tell them their thoughts on a daily basis so that the elder would know what was going on internally with the individual, what they were struggling with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so Freud, you know, he's not that he made the connection himself with the fathers, but he discovered clinically that it would be better for the analyst to sit behind the analysand and be able to engage in this free association. And that the analyst becomes like a, a blank screen. And so what is projected out of the, onto that blank screen becomes very visible. And you can't project it out onto another person as being the cause of it. You see very clearly that these are your thoughts. These are your ideas, your imaginings, your fantasies, your dreams. And uh, I think most of us would feel very uncomfortable with doing that with anyone. And uh, most people would feel uncomfortable doing even psychoanalysis anymore. You know, we've moved to the short-term treatment and uh, that builds defenses rather than breaks them down in order that something more healthy might emerge. And so, you know, I think our responsibility is to take hold of what is given to us. And we live in a generation where we have access to the fathers like never before. What we're reading now, what we read from Isaac the Syrian, never published in English before the last 20 years. 
and only in its fullness recently. And same with St. John Cassian in terms of being accessible to us. And so we have to sit at the feet of the fathers, immerse ourselves in the study of them, of the scriptures. We immerse ourselves in the sacramental life of the church. We engage in that spiritual battle trust that God by his grace is going to make up for what is lacking, the voids that exist there, even while we're striving uh, to live the life and that we do seek counsel and guidance from those that we, we've come across in our life that we feel are engaging in that battle as fully as they can. And uh, we can't be dabblers in this. And that, that's where the real danger is. And I think that's what we've been doing for centuries, you know, pick, picking and choosing various elements of the spiritual life that speak to us. And often it's the things that are more extraordinary rather than the nitty gritty work of the struggle with the, the passions. We have to immerse ourselves in it in the deepest way that we possibly can. And even with this group over the course of time, I began to see, I was sort of stuck in the academic year because I started this group 25 years ago or so as a campus minister. And so I had two 15 week periods to get through a corpus of the, the fathers. And so I had to radically edit the writings, pull out things that I thought I wanted them to make sure that they would hear, but we never made it through an entire text. And as I got older, as I became an old man, uh, others took over the responsibility for campus ministry. And then I was freed from that boundary and began to say, this isn't how we should be reading it. We can't be dabblers. There has to be this deep immersion and it has to be verbatim and, and slow in the sense that we are immersing ourselves in it and as, as much as possible, sitting at the feet of the fathers and seeking to internalize what they're saying, not only in terms of our remembering it, but engaging in it in our day-to-day -day life. And it's like anything else within the spiritual life. If you take the minimalist perspective, what you're going to get is the minimal fruit. And whenever we've put something before individuals, like we have perpetual adoration here at the oratory, and at first we had a couple hours a week and nobody came to it. And we moved first to having 75 hours a week. So it was every day. And then we had one night, all, all night vigil where the chapel was accessible and people would come in for adoration. And people in the beginning said, no way, you're not gonna get people to do that. But what it communicated by our commitment to have that, it communicated to people, this is something essential. This is something that's going to strengthen you in your spiritual life. This is a way of engaging in prayer that's going to be deeply nourishing. Every one of the hours filled up. And then eventually we moved to perpetual 24 seven. And again, you're, com you're communicating something radically different there, that this has value and making a commitment to it, a concrete commitment to it is necessary in order that you form this habit of prayer and I think the same is true in our study of the fathers, that you know we're not in a race here. It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And we immerse ourselves in it and commit ourselves to study it in the deepest way possible, but to approach it in the way that they talk about. 
that we're never going to understand it simply on the notional level. It has to become experiential for us, where we are embracing the disciplines of prayer, of the ascetical life as a whole, fasting, vigils, you know, all the other things that they mention. So I don't know if that, so I, I went, I covered a lot of territory there, but I know your focus was on discipleship and I say, yes. Uh, and I think that's part of this bigger picture, uh, but part of it is also our, you know, some a, a reformation has to take place, a renewal within the life of the church. And one spiritual writer that I read recently said, wherever there is renewal takes place in the church, it always begins with the Desert Fathers. And I agree with him. And uh, because there's a connection there with the spiritual tradition that is rooted in this radical embrace of the gospel and desire for Christ. And what you find in the writings of the fathers is not this hatred of the self, but rather this intense desire for God and to give one's life to God completely. And so if you think, how are we going to renew the church? Well, it's going to be within our own hearts, seeking to set flame to that same desire for God a hatred for sin, a love for virtue, a desire to give our, ourselves to God uh, without counting the cost. And, uh, and so, you know, I know this group at times seems painfully slow, but that's part of the rationale behind it. Because I, I think in like the scriptures, when, when you engage in the practice of Lexio Divina, sometimes it's one word or one sentence that speaks to the heart and is nourishing. And we might not see the fruit of that for even a couple of years down the road, something will happen in our life. And what we listened to and nourished ourselves upon will bear fruit in our particular lives and spiritual struggles. Okay. All right. So the need for a physician and a surgeon. Uh, we'll do one more paragraph here, and uh, because it's tied in some ways to it, and I think would be helpful for us to look at. Those who aim at ascending with the body to heaven indeed need violence and constant suffering, especially in the early stages of the renunciation, until our pleasure-loving dispositions and unfeeling hearts attain to love of God and chastity by manifest sorrow, this is a great toil, very great indeed, with much unseen suffering, especially for those who live carelessly, until by simplicity, deep angerlessness, and diligence, we make our mind, which is a greedy kitchen dog addicted to barking, a lover of chastity and watchfulness. But let us who are weak and passionate have the courage to offer our infirmity a natural weakness to Christ with unhesitating faith and confess it to him. And we shall be certain to obtain his help even beyond our worth. If only we continually plunge to the depth of humility. So much here, if there's, you should underline this whole paragraph and go back and read it over and over again. And I think if we start from the end and move backwards, it would be the best way to approach it. That humility is really at the heart of this, that the, uh, humility as truthful living, 
we see and acknowledge the truth about ourselves, the poverty of our sin, the grip that the passions have upon us, our infirmity. And we acknowledge this to God. We offer it to God in that spirit of humility. And we make that movement toward turning towards him in repentance and in order to know the flood of his mercy and grace. And so this is where we ob obtain our help to enter into what is necessary for us. And John doesn't varnish it. He tells us very cl clearly from the beginning of the paragraph that it, it takes violence, that the kingdom of heaven suffers violent, violence and the violent bear it away, that the struggle with pride, the struggle with uh, a, a will that has been weakened by our sin, an intellect that has been darkened, is going to in, in, uh, require a bloody warfare. And if we live under the illusion that, uh, that there is not a dying to self and to sin that is needed here, there are, is not going to be any kind of spiritual gain. The ego is always the most difficult thing for us to s struggle with and is always going to seek to insert itself and put itself forward. And... Uh, and so a dying to self, the false self, is needed in order that the true self might emerge. That is, we put on the mind of Christ. We become one with him so that uh, his virtue becomes our virtue. His strength becomes our strength. And so we mentioned last time that even though John uses this familiar image of the ladder, we can't cling to it too much. Because the ascetical life is not just our, you know, forcing ourselves to climb this ladder by the strength of our own will and by our endurance, but it's really more of an abandonment to God and this humble acknowledgement of our sin and opening ourselves up to his grace in order that we might enter into that struggle, that we might produce the fruits of repentance, and, uh, you know, the image from the gospel about the fig tree uh, not bearing fruit and the, the owner of the property says, cut it down. It's not producing anything. And the caregiver says, well, let me uh, fertilize it to dig up the ground around it. Hopefully it'll bear fruit. And basically, this is what the fathers are calling us to do and seeking to do to fertilize that, that the, the, the good soil of our hearts in order that they might bear this fruit of repentance and lead us to turn back to God. And this bears in turn the fruit of greater conversion of life. And it's interesting the language that he uses here again, that our unfeeling hearts, that part of what sin does is that it makes our hearts insensitive to what is good and beautiful. Our hearts become hardened. And part of the ascetical life is the, the crushing of the heart, the breaking of the heart, in order that it might become sensitive again to the things that have divine value, value in the eyes of God. And so the ascetical life, the path of humility, is this slow breaking of, of the heart in order that it might be more and more attentive to the things of God and come then to love God and chastity. And we've talked about this in the past, that 
it's interesting in the fathers, you find this language of desire and this language surrounding the virtues of love, lo loving chastity, loving humility, and even in terms of certain spiritual practice, practices, loving vigils or loving fasting, anything that draws us closer to God or that draws us into that greater freedom that frees us from the impediment to giving ourselves to God in love or frees us from the grip of the passions is something to be loved and cherished. And so I think there are probably very few Christians today and very few in the spiritual battle who love virtue. Not that there aren't strugglers there, but those who've come to the point that they love chastity because, it, and because they understand that it's not about uh, sexual continence, but it's really about love and the freedom to love and give oneself and love in the way that God desires. And so one seeks to purity of heart and to love chastely in a rightly ordered way in order that one might love freely and not objectify the self or others in such a way that we turn away from the love that God has created us for and to experience in our day-to-day -day life. And once one has tasted that, chastity or the love of God, then one is going to begin to hunger for it more and more and love it. And this is where the, the passions begin to gradually lose their grip in one's life, where the, the, the balance is moved from this attraction and love for the passions and what they lead to, to the attraction to God and what virtue offers us in terms of intimacy with him and others. And once that begins to emerge within the human heart, that's where the longing uh, shifts to as well. And then the attraction of the passions weakens. It's not that the demons will uh, cease to attack us or to draw us back to them or to stimulate those uh, disordered desires again. But the more our longing for that, the virtue grows and the more our love for it grows, the less that the, those passions are going to have a hold on us. And uh, that, that's where, you know, we begin to see the real fruit of repentance and uh, the real transformation and conversion of life begin to take take place. A kind of deep joyfulness in Christ begins to emerge. Because I think a lot of people look at the spiritual life, and they, they see uh, only this kind of, viol of violence, of doing violence to one's own will, or of giving things up, what is lost, the satisfaction that is lost, uh, and never come perhaps to taste or to see what is offered to us, uh, the depth of that love, the, the sweetness, the joy of it, the peace of the kingdom that cannot be taken away from us, that very few, like Mary, choose the better part and have a longing for that intimacy with the heavenly bridegroom, that you know, all, everything else that is not that reality begins to fade to the background and no longer has that pull on us that it once did. Samantha Topoluski. I hope I said that correctly. Yeah, it's close. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> Topolevsky? Yeah, I mean, that's the, yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Thank okay. you. Um, 
I really love the, um, the example of our minds being a greedy kitchen dog addicted to barking. I think the description that he gives here, it's very, um, very much applicable to us, even these days, even more so like our minds are very easily addicted to so many things in this world. We have our smartphones, which makes us addicted to nothing other than just to see something like, Oh, I need to look at my phone for no reason. I'm not expecting a call. I'm not expecting a text. I have no reason to be looking at my phone other than to simply look. And that's just the smallest example of our minds truly are just like little kitchen dogs, just addicted to barking. They're looking for any little scrap of something they can get. And it, it almost gives us um, the more, you know, yourself, the more you can look to improve yourself. And it's a very good example for us of it's okay when we struggle, when we are dealing with our weaknesses, when we are starting to fight against our sins, when we are acknowledging, you know, it's through the grace of God that we know we have a sin that we struggle with. That in and of itself is a gift from God. But then to acknowledge it and say to God, okay, I know this is a sin. I need your grace. I need you to help me to have the, even the desire to repent from this sin. You gave me the knowledge I have a sin. Now I need you to help me to have that desire to repent. It's, it's a, it's a deep, it's a, it can be a very long drawn out process, which only comes through the grace of God. And I love that this is just a very, um, it's, it's just, just, it's such a small thing, but it's very comforting to know that, you know, (laughs) it's okay that we struggle with our brains, with our thoughts, with our weaknesses and everything that we have, because it is this process. It is, it can be very, um, deep and long and painful, but it's painful in a good way because we are uprooting a lot of things that have buried themselves deep inside of us. And I'm, I'm reminded, I read an an introduction to um, another book on uh, monasticism in Egypt and everything. Um, But I thought it was a very good, I can just read it. It's just like a quick um, sentence. I think it's very um, applicable and helps to highlight this even more. Um, It's talking, it's a quote from or paraphrasing of uh, John the Hermit or John of Egypt, John of Lycopolis. It says where he's talking about um, monks, uh, monasticism, and the renouncing of the world, and not only of the world, but of the passions for the things that are in the world. And it says, John describes the rooted selfishness that coils around the heart like a serpent, continually burrowing deeper and creating a false and illusory self, which is continually restless and unstable, It is a self which we mistake for our real self. It is precious to us, and we resist the thought of uprooting it. We cover it over, he says, and with empty cheerfulness or vain sadness, and and it just continues on. But I just think we really do create these false ideas of ourselves and who we actually are. That's right, a false identity, and a false identity that we cling to. And I'd go a step further and even saying that it's not okay, even just okay that we have this experience, you know, of this barking dog uh, aspect of ourselves, but that it's uh, actually essential. It's a good thing uh, to see ourselves immersed in the battle, that things get really rough the the moment that one begins to enter into the spiritual life. And the evil one immediately seeks seeks to disrupt it. I can't tell you how many people have told me that over time. You know, once I became Christian or once I began to take my spiritual life seriously, my life became miserable. 
you know, my life was better before, before, you know, uh, entering into my faith more deeply. Uh, but, you know, I think that what we find in the wisdom of the fathers is this comfort and understanding this is how it is, that the spiritual life is a battle, it is a warfare, and that the struggle that you're experiencing is a kind of evidence that you are engaging in it. And not to be disheartened by it, because you're not alone in it. That it's the grace of God that is strengthening your, you. You're not alone on the battlefield. You're surrounded as we by the saints uh, and by your guardian angel and all, this, all the angels. John has all of these wonderful little aphorisms, all these little images that he uses. This barking dog one is always stuck in my mind, as well as the plucky fighter. That nobody goes up against, you know, the scrapper who is known for fighting back even the biggest of bullies, that this, these are the images that he puts forward here, that we are not to be fearful of entering into the battle. In fact, it becomes very important early on, and we'll get to this next week, of entering into this spiritual battle as, with as much zeal, fervor, and love that we can from the very beginning. Uh, because it is this that not only is going to keep us moving forward, but when we experience that zeal wane, it's going to be the memory, the remembrance of that zeal and the fruit that it bore that is going to pick us up again and allow us to st step back into the battle. And, you know, I think our, our focus so much on the spiritual life in contemporary times is, is more about seeking a kind of internal peace you know, of altering our mental states in order to deal with the reality of life. And we talked about this last time as being, you know, Freud's view of, of religion being a psychological construct. If this is what we are using our relationship with God to do, then our faith is suspect. And evidence for the fathers is that the, this faith is real and that we're entering into it with all of our being is that we are going to find ourselves Im immediately immersed in this kind of spiritual combat and that it is not going to be easy and that it, it does mean doing a kind of violence to the self, not in terms of harming ourselves, but in the sense of violence to the will that wants to pull and drive us where it wants to take us, as you said, like this barking dog that just wants to consume something, to feed itself, even with, when it's not hungry. As you said, just the sight of one's phone sitting there is enough to make one pick it up in order to get this kind of false nourishment from it. There's great things to come, folks. So don't let the language frighten you off. You know, if anything, let it do the opposite. You know, light that fire within you. Okay, so we're a little over time, so why don't we stop there for tonight? And we made it into some of the more meaty parts, as I promised, and so we, we got things rolling now. The engine's moving forward. And In the uh, Eastern uh, Church, uh, Father, it's, uh, we celebrate the uh, uh, feast day of St. John Mass on, on Sunday. I know, and I'm going to have the opportunity to participate in Divine Liturgy. Oh, good for you! Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. I'm preaching on the on the Sunday of John Columbus. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> so, okay, why don't we close as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks. Thank you all. Have a great night. Thank you.